my dear sister. Hello. How are you doing? Give oh, me a big hug. So excited to see you. Lord, are you in London? I am. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. But thank you. Thank you for this stuff. Oh, can you see me all right? I can see you beautiful. I can. I can see all your beautiful books. Where are you? Oh, I've just finished class at 525, and I'm here at Union Seminary. Oh, amazing. What yeah. were you teaching today? I was teaching. We were teaching uh, James Baldwin. Okay. Notes of a Native Son, the early Baldwin in the 1950s, 48, 1955. Well, we had a dialogue, I'm telling you. That James Bowen is something else. <laughs> he is something. And he said, I walk into music, I write to music. I said, yes, we understand. We understand, <laughs> brother. We understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a privilege to have you here today. Thank you. No, but thank you so very much. Just salute you for all you are and do. And you, being one of the greatest thinkers of our time, very excited. Well, I think dear friend. If I, could, <laughs> if I could be to the world of ideas with you are the music, I would be doing some serious stuff, I can tell you that. <laughs> 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 no. So... I was wondering if we could talk about Bonhoeffer today, oh, as we boy. had a little chat about him last time. What do you think? Absolutely. Indeed, I got your wonderful words, your message, your text. <laughs> uh, we weave Bonhoeffer into both his love of music, him himself being a musician, and you know what that means in terms of uh, music as a beacon of hope in such a grim time. Absolutely. I was so interested by your comment about him seeing life through counterpoint yes yes and the polyphony of life and what a beautiful representation that is of all the arts and how they can all come together to illuminate each other and a way forward right absolutely and then you know Bach has this notion what is it is it Cantus firm yeah is that is that the right pronunciation of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was just reading C about it today, actually. C A N T U S F I R M U S. Yeah, Cantus Firmus and Cantus Firmines. Yeah, no, no, that 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 is so crucial for Bonhoeffer, though. He uses the language explicitly. Yeah, yeah. You were just looking at Cantus Firmus. I was. Well, I was reading about Bonhoeffer and what music he really loved. Oh, oh, oh okay. Wow. And um, yeah. he was really into Schubert and Schumann and Bach. Exactly. Um, and sort of Bach to Wolf was how one article described, you know, his level of um breadth and understanding and involvement and appreciation and even performance of music right it was exactly. it was both that's exactly right no indeed indeed no he, the music set really at the center of his theological genes yeah but so we, we'll get a chance to 
to just see Rohanna like that. That's dynamite. Well, I was thinking as well, we could talk a little bit about how we met and love of Blake and genius and all that stuff. Because it's That's fun. Too. If anything you want to ask, we go for it. All right. So do you remember all those years ago when we met? I think it was many years ago. It was at Pestici. That's uh, right. How many years was it? Would it be like seven? I think Eight. 10, maybe, maybe even 10. 10. It yeah. could be 10, huh? Because that would be 2012. I started teaching 2012. You were a student then, right? That's right. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that something? Wow, look at you now. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. So at least it's really it's at least 10 years then. Can you believe that? No, no. But it's amazing, you know, where we are now when you think of where we were a decade ago. The world has really changed. The world has changed, but we've been blessed enough to flower and flourish. That is true, because we've we've had so much support from all of our friends, like William Blake, Beethoven. Exactly. That's precisely right. Isn't that the truth? And concrete friends like family and loved ones that we can touch and oh no that's very true it works on those different levels mm. it's just hard to believe 10 years passed by so quickly i know i know i um you you have the bonhoeffer chair don't you at, yeah. um at the <laughs> so that's a very special connection so how how is that given and and how did that happen is that just because of the general line of, of, of tutorship? How, how does it work? You know, it, it was a very deep thing because there was a former president of Union Seminary named Donald Shriver, who gave one million of his pension to Union once he was no longer president and was near death, just for the Bonhoeffer chair. He happened to be the same president who brought me to Union in 1977 when I was 23 years old. And wow. so I wow. heard that I was having my, when I had my challenges at Harvard and Union came forward and said, my God, we've got the chair open. We're looking for someone. Is there any chance that you'd be interested? Then I got a call from him, Donald Schreiber, as well as the president, Serene Jones. And she said, uh, God, would be wonderful to have you. And Don said, my God, Cornell, we go back almost 40 years. Can you believe that the very thing I've been pushing for, you could be the occupant of? And I said, wow, that sounds downright providential to me. <laughs> I better get moving. <laughs> better get moving, get back to New York. And that's how it be. That's magical. Wow. And Bonhoeffer's always been, you know, one of the great exemplars for me. There's just no doubt about that. And did his love of music influence how you felt about music to any degree and how has music influenced your work? But it's interesting because, you know, I never realized how central music was until I just dwelled and immersed myself in the corpus because I decided I would teach a course on Bonhoeffer every year, just having, being an occupant of the chair. So I read tons of book on Bonhoeffer and I discover, wait a minute. <laughs> Here's somebody whose conception of theology has music at the center of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's, it's just unbelievable. Who would have thought? So that's one of the things we can get into too. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And yeah. and so that that reinforced your love of music. And did you always have this love and understanding and appreciation of it? Where did it come from? Oh no, for me it came from from my home and church and uh, hanging out on the block with the brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Music has always been something that we 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 breathe, we inhale and exhale. No doubt about that. And that was primarily, you know, in the black section of town, listening to uh, rhythm and blues and listening to jazz, and then of course going to church every Sunday and getting that very rich gospel singing with the Silver Echoes at Shiloh Baptist Church weekly. And wow. so music has always been at the very center of, of, of who I am. There's no doubt about it. And yeah. theology is the center of everything that you do and informs everything that you do. Well, right? certainly my Christian uh, uh, faith and Christian conceptions of the world sit at the center of, of who I am. There's no doubt about it. I have a little suspicion of theology because theology tends to be a more... Uh, abstract rendering of the consistency and coherence of the Christian faith. Whereas I tend to think it's more something lived than conceptualized. And uh, there I'm probably closer to Blake again, you know, it's really yeah, yeah. Of imagination and the role of beauty and the role of truth and the connection of truth and beauty and the contradictions and incongruities that all of us have to live. Christian, non-Christian, Buddhist, Jewish, Hindu, whatever it is, secular, we all shot through with these incongruities and, and, and contradictions. And so I'm closer to Pascal and Kierkegaard than I would be to Aquinas, for example, or Whitehead, because they're actual theological minds trying to render it absolutely consistent and coherent. Whereas with Pascal and Kierkegaard, they're saying, you know, there's a non-rationality, a trans-rationality always shot through it and that we're more like poets than we are like scientists. Mm. Poets are much more concerned with how we use and mobilize imagination to authorize alternative visions of the world, knowing that whatever we do, there's always gonna be contradiction and incongruity shot through it. Yeah. And do you believe that we are accessing something greater than ourselves oh, every time. Absolutely. absolutely. Very much so. Very much so. That uh, I think a certain humility and fallibility is just built into any mature conception of what it means to be human. I think that, you know, Bonhoeffer was such a, a lovely place to start because it, it brought both of our worlds together and it and you know I thought that was a really nice thing it was and I was so fascinated when you told me about him because I had no no idea about any of it and it's just so illuminating. Well, I, I, I know that Bonhoeffer speaks to you so you know Bonhoeffer is so much a Lutheran in a very subversive way because it was Luther who said uh God's two great gifts to humanity is the word of God and music. Yeah. And the word of God, he really meant Jesus. He didn't mean words of God in the Bible. He mean the words of the Bible that point toward logos, that point toward this Jesus 
uh, of Nazareth and Jesus Christ. And so with Martin Luther giving all of his ugly stuff about what he said about Jewish brothers and sisters and women and peasants, that he knew that at the center of the human condition mm. was this need to come to terms with suffering, moans and groans and, and wounds and bruises and scars and to transfigure it into a sound that could touch people's souls and open them to a love that always transcended their own mortal status. And so the love of God manifests in Jesus and Jesus's love of the poor and oppressed always are inseparable from the raising of our voices in sound, the creation of beautiful sounds with instruments. And you remember what Bonhoeffer says, he says, he or she who does not cry for the Jews is not permitted to sing Gregorian chants. <laughs> he said that in 1938, seven years before he was executed by the Nazi. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Wow, of course. So, so, you know, he was one of the few, even part of the confessing church that was anti-Nazi, but so many, so many people in the confessing church were concerned about the purity of the gospel being contaminated by Nazism rather than the gospel leading toward a genuine solidarity with suffering precious Jewish brothers and sisters. And yeah. so for Bonhoeffer, when he talked about entering in underground activities, the seminary that he founded, writing the cost for discipleship, that great classic of 1937, that he connected it being genuine solidarity with the suffering, yes. the Jews, German dissident voices, the communists, the socialists, the gays, but disproportionately the Jews. And so in that way, you can imagine, you know, that uh, when he talked about cantus firmus, love of God, and the counterpoint and the contrapuntal dimensions of that, it had everything to do with learning to live a life for others, to be a follower of Jesus is to come and die because you're willing to live a life for others. And that's a radical move. Yeah. Very radical move. That's like Jesus running out the money changes in the temple, which led toward his crucifixion. You see, we don't like to talk about that Jesus too much, but that's, you can go to Rembrandt and get a beautiful rendering of it. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it's not too many uh, persons who really want to come to terms with Jesus chasing out those money changes. Not because Jesus hated the rich. He hated greed. Yeah. He hated callousness toward the poor. He hated indifference toward the, the, the vulnerable. And that's Bonhoeffer's conception of yes. theology, what he called the polyphony of life. Theology is a polyphony of life. Isn't that some, his dominant metaphor of what theology is? Centrally musical. Absolutely. It's so incredible. And it feels so much less performative than if you like organized religion. That's right. It's That's a genuine radical attempt and dedication towards true empathy at against all the odds, right? That's what I right. It's the embodiment and enactment in deed and action of what the Greeks what the Greeks, what our precious Jewish brothers and sisters would call hesed, steadfast love, loving kindness to orphan, widow, fatherless, motherless, persecuted, and subjugated. Yahweh tells Jewish brothers and sisters in covenant with them 
my, I, what I ask of you, Micah 6, 8, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. Do justly, mercy deeper than justice. Any justice that's only justice soon de degenerates into something less than justice. You need something deeper than justice to keep it going. Deep mercy, love, compassion. Shakespeare says the same thing in, in Merchant of Venice. With that tremendous reflection on justice, but mercy must always go beyond the justice. Always cut deeper than the justice. See that that's the level of the human, not just the legal. That's the level of the human, not just the uh, juridical, as it were. And that's part of the genius of Hebrew scripture that Jesus, of course, uh, uh, picks up on. But Hillel does, and the other rich uh, rabbinical Judaic traditions do as well. And the purer cause, right? Mercy is the purer cause, and therefore the greater and the deeper cut that you're talking about. And it requires a kenosis, an emptying of oneself. It's like you on the piano. You're giving it your all. Yeah. It's like James Brown on the stage. He's giving it his all. Aretha sang it. She's giving it her all. Brahms' Requiem. No reference to God, no reference to Christ. Reflecting on the death of his mother. You can feel Brahms's heart, mind, and soul in it, and we haven't even got to Schubert yet. Oh, D nine six. Oh, we could go on and on. <laughs> it's all there. You know what I mean? Cool. You can just feel the emptying, the giving, the unbelievable uh, willingness to push oneself. Uh, uh, that's what kenosis is at its deepest deepest level now it still includes a mastery of craft and technique and unbelievable discipline but in the end it's going to be a soulful thing it's a giving of something very deep in the dark corners of one's own soul and as William Butler Yates used to say it takes more courage to dig deep in the dark corners of one's own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield Wow. That's William Butler. That's our Irish brother. <laughs> yes. That's why, I, I, you know, when Shelley says poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, that last wonderful sentence of in defense of poetry published after he died, that I would say musicians are the vanguard of the species because they're the ones who authorize a different alternative reality by laying bare through sound and silence between notes, through chords, resonant, dissonant, and so forth. Ways of being in the world that can disrupt the dominant forms of hatred and greed and hypocrisy and, uh, and envy, all the things that we wrestle with every day in our lives, that we actually have a kairos. There's a connection between kenosis and kairos because kairos is a disruption of a chronos. It's an interruption of a routinized time. And Kairos is this meaningful moment where that music is hitting, the sound is felt, the stories are soaking our souls such that we can get a sense of what love and justice and community, genuine high quality relation and being sincere about one's own self, honest about one's own dark sides, all of that becomes manifest 
in the great art. The and great true art. vulnerability, right, is, is what true is required. vulnerability, that's precisely right. And, you know, Blake is one, Keats is another in the poetry, is the musicality in Keats that's undeniable, probably his greatest poem too. To autumn is music's at the center of it, the auditorial dimension. Toni Morrison's beloved, one of the greatest novels of the last 50 years. Musical to the core, to the core, not just in the language and the sound, but she writes it, she says, My novel, I want it to be the sound that breaks the back of words. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> That's amazing. just the Toni Morrison. And she's coming out of, you know, the blues tradition, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, all the way through, I think, the greatest, Sarah Vaughan. And uh, she, you know, she's going to sing Misty in 1964 in Sweden. I was just watching that with my lovely wife, Anahita. And we just had, we almost weeping. <laughs> when you hear Sarah Vaughan, she's singing a song by Earl Garner that is breaking the back of words and touching your soul in such a way that you cannot but feel something deeper than the ordinary, a power bigger than you, no matter how agnostic or atheist what one would be. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's, it's just nothing like it, but I mean, but this is what, what all great art does. I mean, it's uh, very much so is what all great art does. Bonhoeffer, you know, he, he has it. Music had this kind of obsessed in some ways with Bach, probably more than others, St. Matthew's Passion obsessed with the um, the mass and B minor, uh, but other, I mean, the, the, the fugues and so forth as well, the well-tempered uh, fugues at the very end, the offering of the later, later, later Bach right before his, his death. And it's interesting because when he's, at, he's near death, he says, there's many biblical passages I can't read anymore. He says, they don't speak to me in a deep way. He even says, real K, that the greatest poets of death and lamentations and lament. He said, Rilke doesn't speak to me because it's too individualistic. It's true that beauty is the first touch of terror that we can bear, that beautiful definition of beauty and the first elegy of the Dueno elegy by Rilke. But he said, even Rilke doesn't speak to me. Well, who speaks to you? Bach. <laughs> Isn't that something? And Lil Stiffner, the great poet of the 19th century. But he said, it, it, it's Bach. You know, I had wonderful discussions with Christoph von Donanyi, who was the, you know, the great conductor of Cleveland. You know, his father married Bonhoeffer's sister, Christine. Right. Older sister. Wow. And so Christoph and I would steal away. He's such a magnificent human being. And just reflect on his father. His father was executed. Uh, just like Bonhoeffer was, you know, fighting against Hitler, uh, yeah. part of a plot to murder Hitler. And uh, he was a godson of Bonhoeffer. Oh, wow. And that's that one, of the the... Great, one of the greatest conductors of our time was the, uh, was the godson of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And that was the 20th of July plot, right? Is yeah. that the plot? That's yeah. exactly, that's exactly right. Exactly right. No, indeed, indeed. So it's fascinating to see these kind of uh, 
direct and it's even more than just affiliations because music sits at the very core of it. So they thought he was going to be a classical pianist like yourself, uh, more than a theologian. Yeah. They really thought so. What happened was he came to the United States with two PhDs in theology. He arrived at Union Seminary, right where I am right now. <laughs> and uh, he decided, he said, you know, there's no theology here at Union. Everybody's concerned about justice and making the world a better place. But there's no connection with powers bigger than themselves. There's no talk about humility in the, in the form of sin and just how wretched human beings can be, just the disasters that we can actually be. And so he went over to Abyssinian Baptist Church where Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who was the father of the great Adam Clayton Powell Jr., was pastor. And it was in that black church, he said, I heard the gospel proclaimed for the first time in America. And he became a member of the church. He taught Sunday school. He taught a woman's group and preached from the Pope. And he's the only vanilla brother in a chocolate sea of Baptist. Wow. So when he went back to, to, to Germany, he carried with him recordings of Negro spirituals and gospel singing and so forth. And he would play that at his underground uh, seminary there uh, uh, that put shut down by the Gestapo after a few years. But it's interesting to see this wonderful connection between a German prophetic figure and the best of the black church across the Atlantic Ocean, across the pond. Yes. Very, very much so, very, very much so. But there's there's something about Johann Sebastian Bach, I'm telling you. <laughs> Glenn Gould is not the only one who can have a profound appreciation <laughs> of Bach and his legacy. And we thank Felix Mendelssohn and a host of others who help keep it alive in the 19th century and thereafter. That's right. That's right. And I suppose um, what I would love to know from you um, is what you see the role of music and the role of philosophy and literature and all of these things that are really one and the same and inform everything that you do and, and the, that we both do, I think, in many ways in healing and directing the world that we have in front of us at the moment and where mm. how you see that happening yeah you know line 607 b5 of plato's republic in the last chapter he talks about a traditional quarrel between poetry and philosophy and he sees philosophy as trying to displace homer homer had been the source of paideia the source of deep education and shaping the souls of persons he wants philosophy to do that in the republic and we know homer is associated not just with poetry but with song right because it was part of accumulation of a number of different voices in the oral tradition that then is written down and so it's no accident plato bans the flute in the republic because the flute appeals to certain sides of the soul that he thinks are not rational and we don't need that. Only the lyre with one string is permissible. And of course, almost all poets are banned, are banned in the Republic as well. Just those poets who will create poems that, poems, hymns to gods and hymns to great men. Why is that important? Because see, when, when philosophy is not cast over against poetry, but actually goes to school with poetry, it also means philosophy goes to school with music. 
Yeah. Because poesis goes hand in hand with creation of sound as it does hand in hand with beautiful words. And so it connects the quest for wisdom as something that's always grounded in a quest for truth, beauty, and the good. Yeah. There's been a whole lot of talk about the truth and beauty gets pushed to the margins. No, 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 no. When philosophy goes, goes to school with poetry and music, then truth talk goes hand in hand with beauty talk. That's why Keats is so important. <laughs> See what I mean? Beauty yeah. is truth, truth, beauty. That's all you know on earth. That's all you need to know on earth. Because beauty all of a sudden now is so intertwined with truth in that way. And I would say the same thing about the good. And, and as a Christian, I'd say the same thing about the holy. Uh, so therefore, for me, any serious philosophical reflection is a quest for wisdom. And that quest for wisdom has to be broad enough and deep enough that it embraces a quest for truth, beauty, goodness, and even the holy. And in that sense, it means in the end, you know, for somebody like myself, who's basically just a love warrior and a freedom fighter and a joy spreader and a, a wounded healer. That's what I aspire to be. That's my tradition. <laughs> that's really where I come from. What a quest. <laughs> no, it is true. That's Martin King. That's Fannie Lou Hamer. That's Harriet Tubman. That's John Coltrane's Love Supreme. That's Aretha. That's Stevie Wonder's Love and Need of Love. All of those tying love warriors and freedom fighting and joy spreading. Louis Armstrong, who's who spread more joy than Louis? Oh my God. Yeah. Not just revolutionary, a, a master of his art, but always overflowing. Yeah. Almost like the Bell Shimtoff, just overflowing with a joy, overflowing with a love, overflowing with a compassion, you see. That's my tradition. And so in the end, I say, how do I keep the best of that tradition alive in a moment of increasing greed, hatred, hypocrisy, envy, polarization, dehumanization, people giving up on even communicating with each other. And it's a beautiful thing to find joy in keeping alive such a tradition, even as that tradition seems to be more and more uh, pushed to the margin. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why your artistry is so very important, so crucial, you see, because it's, 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 it's not just keeping alive, but ensuring that the great works uh, on the piano in the classical canon remain vital and vibrant, and keeping that particular kind of bread of life fresh. And then your connections with David Bowie. I mean, we can go on and on about how these conversations, the overlaps become so very important. And, uh, and, and it's done with a spirit of joy, a spirit of fallibility. You know, that uh, we, we hear Sister Martha play the piano. We say, <laughs> ooh, we've got to humble ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> You hear Art Tatum play the piano. You say, ooh, I've got the humble box. <laughs> and then you go on and do your beautiful thing on the piano. Yeah. It's a magnificent calling. That's what it is. It's calling. It's a vocation. It's not just ambition, not just a profession. No, no. And it's not just titillating and stimulating people. It's caring and nurturing for their hearts, minds, souls, and bodies. That's the key. 
fantastic. And that's what you manifest in the, uh, you know, the, the 10 years that we have been blessed to uh, uh, talk, wrestle with these issues, try to always accent the, you know, the best of what our own callings are, no matter how sporadic it's been. It's been so episodic in some way, but still, it's just so, uh, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. It really is. And always a constant, even if we are not in the same place for a long time. It's always there. That's exactly right. And of course, you're always in my prayers, and I'm in your prayers. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for today. It's been such a great, great pleasure to have you. That's a blessing for me. And you just remain the. Courageous and visionary, artistic genius, and overwhelming talent that you are. And just always know that uh, there's many, many, many people out there who have a profound appreciation of your gifts and the fact that you're willing to use your gifts to give to others. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, Sister Harriet. I'm telling you, it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) And yours too. And yours too. Thank you so much. And we'll speak again very soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Indeed. Stay strong. God bless. You God too. bless. Thank uh, you. Bye. <laughs> indeed, indeed.